The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Fenstaden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to talk about a story that you and I have been covering for a number of years, but really just got blasted into the limelight last month with a new BBC documentary. A couple years ago, we started to notice this trend showing up on Chinese social media of what they call blessing videos or greeting videos. And they were these, what appeared in the beginning to be these rather innocuous videos where people from around the world, mostly in poor developing countries, would hold up signs and placards in Chinese and say, you know, happy birthday, or they would say, good luck on your exam. And you would buy these uh, back in the day. No longer you can do this, but back in the day, you could buy these on Taobao, which was Alibaba's huge online e-commerce platform. But in recent years, one of the things that we've been covering, and you've been writing about quite a bit, Kobus, is how they took on a much more sinister, much more exploitative tone to them. Tell us a little bit about that shift from being innocuous, cute videos to being something that is far more toxic. Well, the, the first one that we saw was featuring African children, which you know isn't necessarily a problem in and of itself but it obviously working with children is a lot more is a lot more complicated than working with adults and then these children were you know sometimes just repeating repeating these kind of innocuous messages but other times the messages got a little weirder and then at some stage the one that that I think really really drew a lot of attention you know was was explicitly racist and and it was it was the kids essentially being being um coached to say anti-black racist kind of captions in mandarin you know so so they they weren't aware of what they were saying but they were being coached word by word by by some someone off camera and then that went viral in in china and it, it was it was extremely problematic you know and, and and that i think raised a lot of questions about what this entire industry is about now, this industry is far more than just children and also Africa. There are videos that we've seen from Ukraine, from Russia, from Egypt, a number of different countries around the world, even in Southeast Asia, they're being done as well, to the point they're not always focused on children, but children are oftentimes a theme. There are also these so-called warrior videos where they've got basically strong black men in loincloths, these very stereotypical imagery of, of black men, and they are holding up signs as well. And again, highly exploitative. And this all, again, came front and center last month when the BBC pointed a very large spotlight on the issue when they published a 50-minute investigation by the Africa Eye team entitled Racism for Sale. Now, this is the first time that an international news organization has done this kind of investigation into the so-called blessing video business. And Cobus, they specifically went after that one video that you referenced. And we are just thrilled to have on the show today the two reporters who helped to lead that investigation. And they are joining us from London, Renako Salina, and also from Malawi, Henry Muhango. Good afternoon and good morning to both of you. 
Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having us. It's nice to be back. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to speak to you. We really don't take it for granted. Well, it's wonderful to have both of you. Thank you for taking your time today. Congratulations on the incredible work that you did and the impact that it's had. You've transformed this topic in in, in just with one program. And I I think it's really a compliment to the great work that you and the team did. Renako, let's start with you. Clearly, watching the documentary, this was a very personal assignment for you. It was obvious throughout the show that this was an emotional topic and at times even very painful for you. Can you tell us how you pitched the story to your editors and how this this came about, how this got onto the BBC's radar? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I've been based in, I had been based in Beijing for about six years, going on to my seventh when COVID hit and when I eventually left, and in the same year that this video surfaced online, 2020. And so, you know, knowing that this industry had existed for seven years and I came across it in its second or third year very early on. Um, and knowing again that, you know, these videos have continued to exist without much of a strong challenge um, or censorship, you know, I felt quite strongly that something had to be done. And I think it's important to say that, you know, from the very beginning, people had been raising concerns. You know, I had done a video about this in 2019. Wadamaya had spoken about this industry before. Um, Chinese academics had been raising raising awareness and saying this shouldn't be allowed online. Then in 2017, you know, you see a kind of a bit of international media interest with written articles from France 24 and from other people. BBC did one as well about this industry. Um, But again, it was allowed to continue time and time again. I think one other thing that's really important to establish quite early on in this conversation that while this industry definitely features people from across the world, the only place, the absolute only place, and this is after years of investigating and pouring through this content, that these creators feel comfortable enough to use children is in the African continent. And by, by far... You know, the, the people who appear most in these videos are Africans, be it men, women and children. So after kind of seeing that this industry wasn't going anywhere and in fact was getting worse and doubling down on the problematic nature of it, which was to me apparent from the very beginning, I felt, you know, I was kind of leading on from examples that I'd seen previously and when it comes to racism and anti-blackness in a Chinese context. And that example showed me that Oftentimes, if you want these issues to be taken seriously, they need to be placed on a global stage. It shouldn't take that. But that's that's the experience that I've seen. And so I decided to kind of contact Africa Eye and, and um, you know, our editor at the time, our exec producer, Dan Adamson, who instantly, you know, understood the issue at hand. And, and that's kind of how the, the film came to be um that was back in 2020 so that was the same year that this video surfaced online um and after a couple of years or well, a year and a half of digging into this the product is kind of is is out and with everyone now yeah so that's how it happened and henry how did you get involved and what was your first thoughts when you saw these videos uh so what happened was that ronaldo had taught me about this story and she managed to find the exact coordinates of uh, the village where uh, this man uh, called Soso was operating. So 
Runako sent me the coordinates and I had to follow them until I reached the village. It had to take me some time to exactly uh, reach the uh, area where uh, the central point where SUS was uh, operating these videos. But before I, I, but before I went to the village, I had to make a friendship with the people living around the village. So I had to gather a lot of uh, information uh, from them. I had to interact with them. And what they told me was that all the villagers I was interacting with me were telling me the same story. This guy was here for charity work. At the moment people started telling me about that, I noted something. I noted that I think there is something wrong because these people believe that this guy is there for charity work because they haven't watched the racism video. So I said, I think, let me try to find out more. So I had to go to the village and I really come across uh, this guy. When I saw the children that were being involved in uh, these videos, I'm telling you, I was really shocked because it was a school day and these kids were supposed to be uh, in class. But this was the time that she was, uh, I mean, this guy, the, these kids were taking videos. Uh, I mean, we are doing videos with the Susu. I really felt bad in Malawi and most of African countries. We believe that education is a key to a better life. When you're not educated in life, I mean, in Africa, then you shouldn't expect your life to go well. So something that came automatically the moment I saw this man with these kids was about the future of, of these kids. I had to think about uh, their future. Like some of these kids are girls. When we're talking of issues of maternal health, most victims of uh, these issues are from rural areas. And most of them are those who have not even gone far with education. And I felt it's really high time that uh, I pull up my socks and partner with Ronako at least to achieve our goal. We have to expose this because I believe that it's not only here. There might be so many areas out there where this practice is, uh, is happening. And the problems that I can foresee from this, so, uh, from this community are the same problems that are almost all over there. So generally, that was uh, my picture of this man and his activities when I first went to the village and see, and, 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 and see him. The man that Henry is talking about is a gentleman by the name of Susu. That's his nickname, but his Chinese name, based on the ID that the BBC team found, is Liu Ke. A quick little update. Apparently, after the video, or the, the documentary was released, Liu Ke, or Susu, hit the road and then fled into Zambia. And since then, he has apparently been arrested by Zambian authorities. I'm not sure if he's been extradited back to Malawi, but he is now in custody right now. So he is, he is facing potentially some consequences. Uh, Runako, when we talk about Susu, in many ways, he is representative of a rather disgusting industry, uh, but he is by no means alone. Do you have any sense on the scale and size of this industry that is producing these so-called blessing videos, both in Africa and around the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's an unregulated industry and that's one of the reasons why it's been able to kind of exist and, and, and kind of take new forms um, whenever controversies hit. Um, what's been really interesting to observe is both Susu's own words. You know, obviously the film is 50 minutes, just under 50 minutes, and we couldn't fit everything in it. But he told us 
um, himself, that in Zambia alone, there were 10 operations. And if, you know, it happens quite quickly. And if you blink, you could miss it. But in the earlier stages of the film, one of the things that I thought to include um, was a map of the continent locating within several African countries the operations that I'd seen so far. And actually after I found another one. So it was about seven seven countries scattered across the continent that either presently or previously host operations of this kind, whether it's featuring children. I mean, by Susu's own words, he tells us in just one day, in just one day, and this is over a period of um, five successive days, he was able to film 380 videos. And that's in one day. He told us at the time that each of these videos were going for um, hundreds of um, of uh, of quite of uh, UN Chinese UN, right? And so you can see, just imagine over time. This is one of the most prolific, and that's the reason why he took the focus beyond just this video. Um, you know, he took the focus because he was one of the most prolific filmmakers. He started his operation as early as 2016, 2017, and the industry itself started in 2015, right? So if that's one day that gives us an idea of how many videos are being produced. And just like anything on social media, this industry thrives off of innovation. So, you know, you want new clicks, you want new audiences, you, you, you want more, more customers, you have to get a new costume, you know, you have to push a few buttons, you have to pu- push the boundaries a little bit. So it's, it's an expanding industry, expanding also into new markets now. Henry, you know, one of one of the most kind of, you know, like a, a really important character in, in the story is is this very sweet little boy called Bright, who features prominently in, in some of these videos. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about him and about, you know, about how, how you guys found him and, you know, and, and what you came to understand about about his involvement. No, uh, what, what happened was that Arunako found him in uh, one of the videos and when she saw him, uh, she was interested to follow him up. So she also managed to find out the coordinates of the village where this boy was living. And uh, she sent the coordinates to me. So I had to uh, make a follow-up and uh, I finally reached the village where this boy is staying. When I met the mother and the boy, I, I almost cried because when I looked at uh, the life that this boy and their mother are living, I'm telling you, it was really terrible. I couldn't understand why this man could not pay them enough for the great work that this boy was doing. And again, uh, the story that this family had was the same. This man, I mean, was here for charity work. And the mother was hopeful that in the process, Suso would, would be able to convince his Chinese donors to support this family. And like the mother was shocked as well uh, when uh, she saw that at least nothing uh, came out. What I was told by the mother and the people in the village was that Susu loved the boy so much. He really loved the boy. Wherever he would go, he would make sure that he moves with the boy. At one point, the mother told us she felt bad on, on the way the boy was being treated by Susu. Sometimes Susu was uh, ill-treating the boy. And uh, the mother, like at one point, was frustrated and uh, she went to pick the boy back home. But Soso tried to come back and uh, grab the boy back. So it was something that uh, was really painful. 
and also looking at the poverty status of the people, someone could tell that I think this guy was taking advantage of this poverty situation to exploit these people. Well, within 24 hours of the video being released, it sparked an immediate reaction from senior Malawian officials, Foreign Minister Nancy Tembo. She held a press conference the day after it was released, and she said, and I quote here, we are feeling disgusted, disrespected, and deeply pained. Now, that same week that the video released, coincidentally, China's top diplomat for Africa, Director General Wu Peng from the Foreign Ministry, was on a tour of Africa and going to Malawi. And so he issued a statement that said, China has been cracking down on those unlawful online acts in the past years. We'll continue to crack down on such racial discrimination videos in the future. There is a lot of good reason to be very skeptical of that statement. Although Taobao, Alibaba's online e-commerce platform, did ban the videos. So there is that. Uh, But they still flourish all over Chinese social media. And there was a comment by Alexandria Williams that I want to get both both of your response to. And Alexandra Williams is a Nairobi-based American journalist, and she used to work at a short-form video company in China. And she wrote a fascinating analysis. She said, the videos have changed over time from being problematic videos of black people saying greetings in Chinese to videos of young women posing for the camera to what we saw in the dock. I think what is important to remember here is that there's a huge money-earning machine behind this. It's not just an individual. It's a whole company, and it's connected to other short video apps that are popular outside of China. Alexandria went on to basically talk about how the algorithms are driving this, and in much the same way that we have in the U.S. and, and the outside world, YouTube basically bubbles up the most extreme videos it really rewards sensationalism. It does lead us to believe, in some senses, that unless the Chinese actually censor these videos, just block them, which they have the ability to do it, Renako, there's not much that's going to be done unless that legal action is taken. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was very much a, a kind of difficult decision to make about accountability um, with a film, a film like this, when there could be cases made and has been, just as you say, with the case of Alex, who also went to PKU like me, um, you know, for, for accountability on so many people's shoulders, right? We can't speak outside of the allegations that we pose in the film, really. Uh, we, you know, we speak about the people that we believe are involved um, in this video and this operation and the allegations that we've heard from people like Baby Bright and his mum. Um, but it's been, I think, the greatest thing um, personally to see this conversation explore beyond just that responsibility of the individual and look at the role of apps and social media and the censors and who's not doing what. There, there is definitely a case to be made for, for, for them stepping things up and whether they will or not is what remains to be seen. I kind of still follow a lot of these guys online um, and they're still monitoring their content. I still see these videos being sold. Mostly now it's adults. But again, the, the same thread of problematicness, you know, underpins it all. So we await to see if these statements will really result in anything more serious. Renako, you know, in, in your own work as, you know, as one of the founders of, of Black Liberty China, um, you've, you've done a lot of work over the years reflecting on the different kind of aspects of black life in China. And I was wondering what the experience of making this this program 
reveal to you like what what your what your thinking was about the demand side of 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 this equation like why do people in china enjoy these videos like what are they actually getting out of it yeah this has been something i've been reflecting on quite a bit actually and it's it's interesting you know because we kind of touch on it in the film but what susu did luca and lots of content creators in this space they play on national pride and that that strong nationalistic sentiment that we've seen kind of grow and grow and grow um over the last few years um and what i mean by that is you know they there's lots of waving of flags there's lots of i am doing good in the name of my country you know it's not in the name of me as an individual it's in the name of my country and so instantly that kind of creates a feeling of 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 pride of kind of you know look at one of the sons of our soil kind of thing going off and 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 representing us well overseas there's also this sense that people are made to believe um wow chinese language and chinese culture you know because when we confronted tsu that was the first thing that he said uh you know i'm here to teach chinese language chinese culture chinese dance etc etc and i do notice a sense of buy in of that of that um idea amongst the audience and you know by itself taken independently of that was the truth you can understand why i mean everyone gets excited to see people across the world celebrating their culture i know myself like i you know it would be something that i would be like wow that, that's cool so you do sense that and then the second thing there's this idea of charity and neediness which is a trope that we kind of constantly see applied to africanness in particular in a chinese context when i think of things like wolf warrior and the idea of saviorism it plays out in a slightly different way in this industry also so i've just got hundreds of videos not just of susu who we cover in the film but of other content creators playing slow sad music giving items to people on camera across the continent um you know creating this idea of 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 helping people you know so i think on one side being perhaps a bit more generous that those are the reasons that people buy into this content i'll read just a quick paragraph it's it's super super quick but i wrote some reflections about this industry as part of a written piece that came out and i i said that to me this industry is a human zoo of sorts it's reimagined for this new digital socially distant age where humans from elsewhere in the world can gawk at the foreignness and often visible poverty of the africans featured today though all through the comfort of their iphones and favorite social media and messaging apps it places a distance between customer and costumed performer that allows the former to avoid questions around the morality and regulation of this trade and i think that bit is quite important you know because whenever people ask me about the industry as a whole you know if it wasn't children it, it should be fine right adults are, adults are involved and you know they they agree to do this and i always think to myself well if the shoe was placed on the other foot if i as an african or person of african descent wandered into a um, a chinese village or area perhaps less economically developed what would the response be and started filming people playing afrobeats or or dancehall in the background and telling them to wave my flag what would the what would the attitude or response be well yeah you know exactly what the response would be it would be just massive outrage and fury that would bear down on you henry we've heard about the reaction from lunako let's talk about what the response was in malawi 
So in the two or three weeks since the video has released, again, your foreign minister, Nancy Tembo, responded very passionately to it. There was a lot of coverage in the Malawian press as well. What's been the, the sentiment there in the response to the video? So I should say, generally, people were shocked to watch the documentary and get what is there. They couldn't believe that this was really happening in their country. I've been watching uh, documentaries that have been uh, happening in Malawi, but I've never seen a big uh, response uh, like what this documentary has achieved. For the first time uh, in Malawi to have a feedback from even someone who is in the rural area, it is not only the elite or the middle class that was able to react to the video, but you could even see someone from a rural area that has an access to a WhatsApp or Facebook able to uh, share the reaction on this. So uh, in general, the reaction has been very positive to the documentary and very negative to this guy. And again, I have also seen that at the same time, people are appreciating that the conduct of Susu does not represent like uh, that of all Chinese guys. I was going to ask that very question about the perceptions towards the Chinese community in yes. Malawi. Has it has it adversely affected their overall perceptions of the community? I would say not to the large extent. At the same time, people are able to appreciate that the fact that this guy was being involved in this bad uh, industry, it doesn't mean that every Chinese person is also involved in this industry. But people are able to appreciate that in Malawi, and other countries within the within these countries we have some people who are participating in bad behaviors that's why we have uh, institutions like the police to enforce the law so the people also believe that source is just one of the uh, one of the people with bad behaviors in china that uh, would do, if he was in china would still would still be arrested by the police because what he's doing here is against the law and people are expecting that the government of china will regard this case as a, one of the criminal, or I would say like that, uh, one of the cases that uh, would need the attention of the police and other law enforcers in China. That's what people have been thinking. At the moment, uh, I would say that still more people are expecting a lot from the government of China. They still believe that China would take this issue as one of the criminal acts that are happening by some some people in the, I mean some some people of their own who have bad behavior and they, they feel like the Chinese government will take a leading role to ensure that such kind of people are being faced justice so generally that has been a, the picture in Malawi Runako, what has been the re- the reaction overseas on on you know our newsletter? We 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 track the kind of rhythm where you know kind of where it, it seemed to generate quite a lot of discussion on Chinese social media, and then at some stage the censors cracked down on it, and, and the discussion kind of went underground. So I was wondering what you know what kinds of reaction you got, and like what you made of the the kind of varied reactions in China. Yeah, I think that was the thing that I was most nervous about. To be honest, it's very hard to. Discussions about race are hard everywhere, right? And, and you know, I was worried about how things would be taken and perceived. So I spent pretty much the first day when the film was released actually just monitoring that on, on Chinese social media and WeChat in particular because that was the circles that I was in. I think what I still feel happiest about is that Africans in China, the African diaspora in China felt so heard 
with this film so listened to because of the topics that it touches on and and you know it, it unearths something that many people feel like they've been speaking about for years it's also really important to say that my professors um the people that I graduated with also have spoken about this and of of Chinese heritage of course right and and also kind of mentioned to me how important this story is and have been sharing it and have been kind of vocalizing their issue with this industry too so I mean I'm not painting a complete picture because yes there were people who also felt you know it's propaganda and the the typical kind of things that you would hear and you know this is anti-China or this is gonna increase animosity towards Chinese people and things like that but if I'm honest I kind of braced myself for a worse response despite the fact that I we tried constantly to remind people throughout the film that hey this investigation wouldn't have been possible without the involvement of many people of Chinese heritage who also felt that this industry is wrong so it's naturally you know it's, it's definitely not a, a, a kind of example of every person from such a massive a massive country yeah that is a big surprise and and let's be honest here that you and I were speaking prior to the show releasing and we fully expected that this was going to get sucked into the culture war between China and the outside world, especially on issues of race, but also given the fact that this was produced by the BBC. Yeah. And the BBC in China today is seen as like a red flag in front of a bull because of all the other issues that the BBC covers that a lot of Chinese people find objectionable to. So even, I guess, I'm surprised that people were able to separate the BBC from the topic and say this topic is worthwhile and legitimate, even though it comes mm. from a news organization that we don't really like. And I was surprised just as much as you are that people were giving it as much time and it didn't get, again, mm. blown out of proportion and the trolls didn't take over the discussion. Yeah, That really surprised me the most. Because normally in these kinds of things and what we've seen from the Guangzhou racism incidents mm. to the Dune incidents, yeah. To all of these different scenarios, the trolls have dominated the conversation. Yeah. And in this case, that didn't happen. And I think that is really a credit to to the online discourse that you generated. Yeah, you know, I, I, like, like, like I said, I also expected that. And I wasn't naive to the space that we were walking into, as you said, you know, how, how the BBC is viewed and, and stuff, unfortunately. I think, you know, I'm not saying that what we did previously all the work that I'd done prior to this documentary is on such a large scale. But I think the reality is that leaning on lived experience, I can speak as someone who has lived there, who has such an affinity towards the place, but also can speak to the issues that exist and can say, hey, I know firsthand that, that anti-blackness is an issue here. And I think being able to say that as someone who is black, as someone who's of African descent, it's very hard to challenge. And you speak Chinese as well. And I think that yeah. that really went to the issue that, it, well, you weren't just another foreigner who doesn't understand China. And the fact that you confronted Luca in Chinese, I think, was very powerful. Yeah, thank you for, for that. I also think, you know, I hope that it kind of generates more of a discussion around the importance of kind of investing in people of African descent, learning and engaging and being platformed in this space. Because this is, to me, this is why it took seven years for the industry to kind of be put on a spotlight, under a spotlight like this. 
Henry, um, have have you had any any kind of indication, um, or Runako actually, um, of whether the people in the village where many of these these videos were shot, whether they had a chance to actually watch the documentary and what their reactions were to the full the full kind of like exposure of of what this industry actually was when they thought it was actually a form of charity. So the people in the, the two villages where Susu was operating the videos had a chance to watch with these video through social media, through uh, WhatsApp, through Facebook. And uh, they were really shocked to understand, to read, to hear from the documentary what this guy was uh, doing. And they couldn't even believe that, uh, they couldn't even be, they couldn't believe the story because next step that they were expecting from Soso was to bring like donors to the villages as he promised them that he's uh, trying to connect them. I mean, he's there for charity work and uh, he's connecting them to the donors in China. But the people were shocked to say that instead of expecting the positive development response from Soso, they only managed to get the reality of uh, these videos. They couldn't even believe that uh, Soso was making a lot of money from these voiceless kids who were being given less than a dollar a day. And uh, as, as one way of uh, trying to influence government's action, people from the two villages, including the victims, participated in the demonstrations uh, from Lilongwe to the Chinese embassy, where they presented their petition uh, and where they made uh, an, an, a number of uh, demands. They wanted both the Chinese and the Malay government to take so that these two communities can be fully uh, compensated. So the their reaction was really bad and uh, it was really emotional because like when I visit the village, uh, they would say, no, the moment we see this person here, then I think things won't be okay. So that was the reaction from the from, from people in these in these two villages. Okay, very quickly before we go, Henry, we'd like to talk about some of the exciting projects that you guys are working on outside of the work that you've done for the BBC. Henry, you have an initiative called Citizen Eye. Tell everybody about that. Thank you. Uh, Citizen Eye is uh, an online publication, a news publication that was born after I realized. So I developed the idea to come up with this uh, online publication after after I realized that investigative journalism is really going down in Malawi, is really suffering an accidental death just because of several actor, factors. I think the bad economic situation in Malawi has really affected professional journalism uh, in Malawi in the sense that uh, media houses failing to practice like professional journalism because they are being funded by politicians. So it's like politicians are almost uh, almost, uh, almost everywhere. Corrupt people are almost on each and every media organization. There are situations where someone, who, I mean, where an editor from a prominent newspaper or radio station or TV station would threaten, so would demand bribes from someone who is being investigated for uh, corruption and the likes so that they don't publish their story. So I felt like we are really killing professional journalism uh, in Malawi. And as someone who uh, is really passionate about promoting professional journalism, as someone who was always passionate about voicing for the voiceless, I felt like it's high time that I come up with something which would be independent, who should be able to give space to the voiceless, which uh, we should be able to at least expose some of the stories that the private and state media in Malawi cannot publish just because of the political uh, and economic environment. Like there have been situations where uh, 
a media organization is, inve- is investigating a story about a certain multinational uh, company, and this company is providing advice to this media to this media house. By the end of the day, the company officials tells uh, tell the media house that at the moment you publish this story, will no longer give you an advice, and uh, in the process, then the media houses start saying, oh no, we are not publishing any story that would affect uh, our advertising because we're surviving on advertising. So that's mainly what uh, made me to come up with this independent online news publication. And where can people find it? You can easily find it by logging into our website, which is uh, by, uh, by logging into our website, which is uh, www.seasonimw.com. Is uh, something that I know even our film readers would really appreciate because we have been covering stories that have been bringing more impact to the nation. We have seen government responding quickly to some of the issues that were exposed. I'm very sure that I think as we go, we even have to go beyond our expectation, beyond the expectation of every uh, one in Malawi, as we are fighting to be the leading investigative news publication in Malawi. Fantastic. You are an inspiration to a lot of us. The same problems are affecting journalists in many countries, not just Malawi. So it's amazing that you are taking action and doing something about it. So congratulations on that. Uh, Runako, you have Black Livity. We mentioned it earlier in the show. Tell us about Black Liberty China and the platform that you've built. Black Liberty China started back in 2018 while I was still in Beijing and I was at Peking University and part of the massive and just amazing African diaspora community there. And we have existed to document African and Afro-diasporic experiences in China and in relation to China for the kind of knowledge and awareness of our global community. And so really I see kind of the next a few years about building and doubling down on what we've been doing so far. We kind of provided the most extensive coverage of what was happening in Guangzhou from right within our community. And despite no longer being in China, I'm still tapped into our community. I still feel very much part of it. So yeah, it's going to be more building on on that in different mediums and hopefully working more with, with um, people like Henry because it's it's been great kind of bridging that gap between diaspora and those at home. So... Yeah, that's that's what we've got coming up. And where can people follow Black Liberty China if they want to stay engaged with what you're doing? So we're on Twitter at Black Liberty. Liberty is L-I-V-I-T-Y-C-N. We're on Instagram at Black Liberty China. Um, and we're also on our website, which is blacklibertychina.com um, and on YouTube as well. Okay, so thank you both for taking the time to join us today. Thank you both for the great work that you've done. And thank you both for the great work you're doing in your private projects with Black Liberty and also with Citizen Eye. Runako Selina is an investigative journalist at BBC Africa Eye and also the co-founder of the online platform Black Liberty China. Henry Muhango is a Malawi-based journalist who worked with the BBC on the racism for Sale documentary, and also the founder of Citizen Eye, an independent investigative journalism platform in Malawi. Runako and Henry, thank you so much. Runako, before we go, uh, are you both on Twitter if people want to engage directly with you to see what you're writing and reading these days? Runako, what's your Twitter handle? Yep, it's at Renako Selina, R-U-N-F-N-O-S, A-K-O, Selina with a C. And Henry, are you on Twitter? Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at Henry Muhango. 
Okay, so we're going to put a lot of links in the show notes today. We're going to put links to both of their personal Twitter handles, to the Racism for Sale documentary, to Black Liberty China, and also to Citizen Eye. So if you didn't catch all of those links, don't worry about it. We'll put it in the show notes for you. Renako, Henry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much indeed for giving us this opportunity. Thank you indeed. Cobus, it is the dream of every journalist, and I speak from my own personal experience, to make a dent in the universe, to do stories that have consequences and that really cause a reaction in terms of getting people to think. These two journalists and the team behind the BBC Africa documentary did that, and it's remarkable. I expected a very strong, visceral reaction from Chinese social media. I expected denials, the usual denials from the Chinese foreign ministry that you know we've seen so many times in the past. And they did something really remarkable. But at the same time, it's very important to remember that Susu or Luke, this one, one guy, is just one guy in a giant industry, in a big poverty porn industry. And... So this documentary, it feels good to watch that things are happening and things are being done and he's getting what he deserves, but he's just one person in a massive, probably multi-million, if not, you know, tens of millions of dollar industry that is selling these exploitative videos. Again, not just in Africa, in many different parts of the world. So I think a lot more work needs to be done. And the irony is that we're counting on Chinese censorship to take action here, which is just perverse in some respects, but that is the only hope to shut this thing down. Yeah, it's that, that's a particularly kind of ironic part of, part of the entire story. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's really important to show this in action. It's really important to make clear, you know, kind of the role of the role of poor Africans in, in this industry. But beyond that, I think it's also really important to, I think, I think the documentary is a prompt to think about the very concept, the, the very kind of like ideas of, of the very, as, as Renaka pointed out, this kind of connection between ideas of poverty and ideas of Africanness and the way that they are just so seamlessly woven together and the, and the kind of bad effects they have. You know, like there's something very damaging that happens when, uh, you know, kind of when people in the outside world can simply assume that an entire population of an entire region are just poor and disempowered. And that's just how it is. And that's just how it's going to be. Um, you know, th th that itself is an incredibly damaging thing. Um, and Africa has been suffering a lot from that. Um, and, you know, and, and in that sense, I think this this documentary really shows what that means on the ground, like what, like how that kind of plays out. You know, when, when, in, when entire kind of populations are thought of as essentially only understandable in the framing of charity, the kind of bad effects that has, you know, kind of on, on, on their lives, I think is, is really important. But I think there's a very big disconnect on the part of the consumers of these videos who probably just think that they're getting some cute kids to dance around and to say some funny things and to hold up some funny signs. And in their minds, I think they believe it's rather benign. And I, I don't think they understand the deep historical painful context that these videos are placed within. That is, and it made me think, for example, the King of Belgium went to go visit Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo at around the same time the video came out. Now, this is interesting because Belgium used to 
export Congolese to Brussels to the zoo. And also in the zoo in Paris at the Jardin d'Acclimatation, they brought Africans as well. And they were held up there much the same way that these videos do, as objectified, as these kind of objects to laugh at, as dehumanized. And, you know, there's a lot more education that needs to happen within Chinese society and Chinese culture. And I will say, this is nothing unique to the Chinese as well. This happens in the West just as much. I mean, there's no room whatsoever for any person in the U.S. or Europe to stand on some kind of soapbox and feel morally superior on this one, given the history that we continue to exploit today. So this is just awful all around. But again, it's this kind of work that journalism can do, and it shows you the importance of journalism. And I'm just, I'm proud of the industry, and I'm proud of Celine and Henry and the BBC for doing this. And to be honest with you, I'm just so relieved that it got the reaction it did in China, where it did spark discussion and debate. And that's how we ultimately will get past this. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of it's important to, to realize that there's a that, that there's a dark side to simply wanting to see people from other parts of the world. You know, that that that, that kind of what, what seems like such a simple thing is actually really loaded. And that there's also a long history of of kind of monetizing that kind of like sometimes kind of ghoulish curiosity. You know, like as you said, like this these, uh, you know, the 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 Belgians, um, you know, these kind of like zoo-like kind of exhibitions of Africans in Belgium, it's not hundreds of years ago. It's relatively recent, and you know, and and, and that itself was 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 fed into a longer tradition in in Western countries of simply strange things from around the world kind of being exhibited. And you know, I, I found research, for example, of where Black South African tribespeople um, from from various backgrounds were shipped to London and this was this was in the early early 20th century and with them were also shipped Afrikaners like groups of kind of Afrikaner families who were all and they were kind of essentially exhibited in, in adjoining kind of enclosures in a very zoo-like encounter like a very, very zoo-like environment for Londoners to to gawk at and like that, that history has largely been erased, but but it happened all over the Western world, and and the and there's no clear line to draw between what we've come to think of as as kind of socially conscious, uh, you know, media genres like like certain like documentaries, for example. Some of them have histories in in this kind of exhibitions, this kind of kind of kind of exhibitionism in a way. You know, so, so it's it's a kind of a tangled, complicated thing. You know, and 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 it, it takes a while, I think, for 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 media consuming populations to start getting a handle on their own media consumption. I mean, this is this is a tough thing to do, even in you know in, in countries that have extremely kind of like well developed media industries where where the kind of meta critique of media has has already been very kind of very integrated into international discourse. That is not the situation in. China, you know, like China has a, has a very specific media environment, a very highly censored one, and one where this kind of pleasure actually isn't as questioned as it might be in other countries. And you know, and and this documentary has been such a strong move forward, you know, kind of in generating those those discussions. Well, let's leave the conversation there. Kobus and I will be back next week. You might hear a little bit of strain in my voice today. I got back to the United States, and upon arriving in the United States, they said, welcome back to your home country, Eric, and here's your passport, and here's your COVID. 
So <laughs> I am hopefully going to be cured of COVID next week, Cobus. That is my plan for our next week's show. Hopefully, hopefully show. We're holding yeah, so, uh, so apologies for the strained voice, but we did want to bring you this important show and this important discussion featuring Henry and Runako. And we're so glad that we had the ability to do that. We're also, we've fallen a little bit off schedule with our new podcast, the China Global South podcast, because of my travels and also now getting sick with COVID. But hopefully by next week or the week after, we'll be back up with that. That'll be our new Tuesdays edition. So look for that on Apple Podcasts. And of course, if you subscribe to this feed, you can get it. All the shows will come into this feed as well. So let's leave the discussion there. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Washington. Thank you so much for joining us. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. 